Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. In 2020, the world saw what was long called impossible. One peace deal after another, signed between Arab states and Israel in the Abraham Accords. As these former enemies beat swords into plowshares, it gave the world hope. But what do the leaders of those nations see in the future? Will we continue on the march to peace or slip back into war, hate, and chaos? We'll hear about that from a man with a front row seat to that history. But first, hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat, to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. In this episode, our time machine welcomes aboard my fellow alumnus from the Rush Limbaugh show, Joel C. Rosenberg. Joel has seen a lot of history unfold firsthand in Israel and across the Arab world. His latest book, in a string of New York Times best-selling novels and nonfiction books, is called Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. In it, Joel shares exclusive, never-before-published quotes, insights, and analysis from his personal conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. Those include Benjamin Netanyahu, who he worked for as a strategist, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the President of Egypt, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, and Jordan's King Abdullah II, as well as many others. You can visit him at joelrosenberg.com for more, and once you're there, you'll see just how prolific Joel is and you'll understand what I'm talking about. There are links through to his personal news blog, as well as his two news sites. Those are All Arab News and All Israel News, where he's the editor-in-chief. He was also kind enough to publish one of my Washington Times columns there. That's a piece on how key Israel is as an ally of ours. Joel and his wife Lynn are also founders of the Joshua Fund. It's a humanitarian charity for Israel and her neighbors. If you choose to support them and make a contribution to peace, you can find it at joshuafund.com. At all of these outlets, Joel Rosenberg offers insights and perspective that you simply won't find anywhere else. And that's something that inspires me in my own writing and here doing the History Author Show. Okay, now that we've stepped off the plane onto the tarmac in the Holy Land, let's join Joel Rosenberg and get his insights into the free world's enemies and allies. And here we are with Joel Rosenberg. He's going to discuss his insightful and really riveting book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. Hey, Joel, thanks so much for joining me today. Dean, great to be with you. I'm happy about this podcast and, uh, and happy to finally be on. I appreciate you inviting me. <laughs> I've been after you for a long time. Every time you have a book come out and you're always kind enough to send novels, advanced copies to my father-in-law up in Canada, who was a pastor. He just passed away in January 
And that was always just so special for him. And I got to feel like a really good son-in-law. So <laughs> I said, the least I could do is have you on and talk about this nonfiction book. Well, this fits for your genre and what you're truly talking about. I mean, my political thrillers, you know, don't because they're fictional. When I was working for Rush and I was ghostwriting with him, um, my liberal friends thought I was writing fiction, but I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. But um, yeah, I'm more, I'm known much more as a political thriller writer, a novelist, uh, than nonfiction. But this fits your your genre. <laughs> well, I've had a couple novelists on, and so I, and even a thriller novel, Tom Grace. So this is your show too. Feel free anytime that I can help and put together an interview. And I won't I won't deny though that I was excited to talk about enemies and allies. Because I can ask you something that right off the top, people probably wonder when they heard me give just part of your bio in the introduction. And that's here you're raising a family, you're writing thrillers, you're writing nonfiction, you edit two news sites, you run a charity, the Joshua Fund, plus you're living in Israel, where occasionally I'll see on your Facebook page, missiles are raining down, and that doesn't that's not really conducive to an easy time writing. So yeah. So much on your plate, and yet you manage to be so productive and always keep a smile on your face. So how do you do it? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, I will say almost, only semi-facetiously that um, while COVID has been horrible for so many who suffered, and I have both been vaccinated and then got it, and uh, a number of people in my family uh, got it even though we were vaccinated, um, and it's been hard and we have lost friends to it. But in terms of the season of lockdown, um, for, an, for an author, that's not so bad. And I don't mean to make light of how hard it's been for people who you know can't work from home, who you know work at a factory or work at a restaurant or, or whatever. But I, I got three books written during this period of time. And you know, again, with all due sensitivities, which are important, but authors would not even realize they were in quarantine or in a lockdown. Like, like I'm not seeing anybody and I'm just here by myself writing every day. Yeah, that's my life. Um, in some ways, it's a schizophrenic life because you are very silent and quiet and private and you're writing. And then you go out on a book tour, which is all people, 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 people. And it's, it's it, you know, it, it, it's, it's jarring, actually. But um the point is, um, I really don't know how to do anything else, Dean. I am uh, I was born and raised in the United States. I'm one of the few Jews that didn't get the financial gene, okay? Because I'm, I'm not your, so your stockbroker, your accountant, your hedge fund manager. I'm not your doctor or your lawyer. I don't run a movie company. You know, I, I'm a failed political consultant. Everyone I, every candidate I work for lost uh, or got furious with politics or disgusted or exhausted and left. Or if they did well, they did well years, years later after I was involved. So, um, yeah, making things up for a living has been much better. But this is a, this is a political thriller that's, that's true in the sense that in the move to Israel and, and, and trying to shift uh, our lives, our center of life, sell our home in the United States and become a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. Uh, we're Jewish. I'm Jewish on my father's side. Gentile, my mom's side, by faith, we're followers of Jesus. Uh, we're evangelical. So that's an interesting uh, identity also in Israel. But all that to say, you know, putting two of our four sons in the army in Israel, trying to learn the language, 
But I think some doors started to open that I couldn't say no to. Like when the King of Jordan read one of my novels in which ISIS is trying to kill him, he's a named character. And rather than banning me from his kingdom forever, he invited my wife and me to come for five days to get to know him. That was that that was a game-changing moment in our lives. It didn't happen until we moved to Israel. And out of that came multiple, multiple meetings with almost all of the key leaders in the Middle East. So many reporters that kept asking me about it, and they wanted to write their own book about what we, what I was learning. And I finally said to my publisher, I think I ought to write a book, <laughs> you know, because these stories are interesting and they're about a topic that's super compelling right now is what in the world is going on in the Middle East? Uh, we want to look away from it. Biden wants to look away from it. But it, it, it's a little bit like uh, Michael Corleone in The Last Godfather. You know, the more I try to get out, the more they pull me back in. Like, you can try to ignore the Middle East, but there's something about the dynamic in this part of the world that pulls you, forces you back in. And Biden is learning that the hard way right now. And Enemies and Allies is the first book. It's the only book that gets into the current um, trends you know, you read a book about the Middle East, and a, even a great book from five years ago, 10 years ago, it's completely out of date. It may have useful information, um, but it, but but events are moving so fast now. And uh, yeah, so uh, somehow, somehow we managed by the grace of God. Well, that's something I definitely wanted to ask you about because your novels can't go out of date. You can always enjoy them. And also the candidate you want always wins, right? So you don't have to worry about, about actually running the campaign or scandals. You control that. But here in a book like Enemies and Allies, you can put it on the shelf and have it go out of date quickly. And when you write a chapter like chapter five, which refers to that meeting with, king, with the King of Jordan, your headline is, I had never met a king before. That's always going to be an interesting chapter, but the rest of the book, you have to try to keep it timely. So yeah. I wanted to ask, in a Mideast that can indeed change overnight, and we have seen that several times just in our lifetimes, how do you design this book? What do you pack it full of so that Enemies and Allies has legs and does stay relevant and isn't like one of those new newspapers or magazines you read in a dentist's office where, oh boy, this is a month old. Yeah. Well, it's tough to do. Um, and, and, and you read the subhead, you know, it's a immensely turbulent and fast moving environment. So just since I put it to bed and, and the publishers start working on it, Netanyahu is out of power and the Taliban is in. What kind of crazy universe are we living in? But the key is to take the facts that I know and the, and the things I've seen and heard and put it in a, in a, in a context of of helping people understand that there's two major trends in the Middle East, and those are not going away for a while. Trend number one, and they're, and they're completely um, at cross purposes, okay? They're countervailing. The one trend is that the, the radicals in the region are becoming much more dangerous and much more aggressive. Uh, Afghanistan and the rise, the sudden rise of the Taliban, the sudden surrender of the United States and the, and the NATO alliance, uh, it's stunning, but it was also foreseeable uh, tragically. But the point is, um, we are seeing the exhaustion of the United States as a people and, 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 and as a government. We're done, you know, as a country, the United States is like, we're done with the Middle East. Like, we're withdrawing, right? This, 
this is Biden's fault. But in fairness, let's remember that President Trump also ran on ending the war in Afghanistan. Now, to his credit, he listened to his generals and advisors and didn't do it, you know, instantly. But he still wanted to pull every single every every, every member of U.S. forces out by May of 2021. Um, I think if he was in office, uh, he wouldn't have done it on a date certain if the environment was still so fraught with the Taliban taking over. Trump might wanted to end the war, but he didn't want to lose, right? He didn't want to be accused of surrender. But still, the instinct was, hey, we're done with that, right? And that's the great fear of every Israeli and every Arab ally in the Middle East. America's getting tired, and we're on our own. And how are we going to navigate? Because on the one hand, the radicals are rising, okay? And the Taliban is not our strategic threat, right? It's a serious problem. But Iran, the Iranian regime and its bid for nuclear weapons and the missile delivery, that's the strategic threat. And Iran's allies with nuclear powers and enemies like Russia, China, North Korea, and even Turkey. So I talk about that. That's one one movement. Uh, one trend line in the Middle East, and it's super dangerous, super dangerous. Iran is more dangerous today than at any other time in history, okay? But the countervailing uh, trend line is that more Arab countries are making peace with Israel than ever in history. We've gone from two Arab-Israeli peace treaties over the last 75 years to four more in a, a matter of a few months, and more are coming. So, so there's a sweeping, game-changing, tectonic shift going on in the thinking on the Arab street, but also, and maybe more importantly, in the palaces, the highest leaders, the, the, the most powerful leaders in the Arab Muslim world are deciding Iran is the enemy, not Israel. And we need to get closer to Israel economically, technologically, relationally, and strategically, militarily, and intelligence, that's, Israel's not the problem. Iran and its orbit, that's the problem. And we've been looking at the wrong enemy all this time. That's a huge shift. It's incredibly positive, incredibly positive. And those things, you know, the, the bad guys are getting more dangerous, but the good guys are, are coming together and, and forming their own alliance. And in the midst of it, the United States is withdrawing. That is the story of enemies and allies. And while the details will change in the days and weeks and months ahead, people need to understand those central truths. And they can do it through this book, which is may sound like a naked plug, but it is true. If you want to, take hear, the, <laughs> if you want to hear the history of the region, you get it here because when I read things and then you talk to the average person, they have no sense really. And I'm not saying I'm a genius. I just happen to be in news and be in politics. I have the time to read it. We talked about time management before. It's very easy to throw your hands up and it's confusing and things do change. And so here we have a threat in Iran that I think most people just feel, well, I know some Iranian people, usually here in the US, they call themselves Persian to get a little separation. Every Iranian person I have ever met, it has been quick to laugh, a big smile, real nice, educated. I understand that this is the diaspora, but still, and you see people over there one-on-one. And then you have people who very simply say, well, 
hey, if they if they ever dropped a nuke on uh, us, we would just nuke them. And I say, uh, forgive me if it's not, first of all, a trade off I'm willing to make that we trade New York City for 15 million innocent people in the greater Tehran area or whatever the area like that's not fair because of the government why that that's this isn't a video game this is people's lives not only people that are alive today but generations that are unborn and I think that's why this kind of book is so important if you read history which is what my whole uh, whole brand is about you you learn how you could take that better path forward. You learn why there's differences. You hear some of these people in Congress speak and they don't have any idea what the foundational divisions are. And if you don't know what they are, how can you overcome them? How can you get people to persuade? And how can you see things like why there's this emerging alliance? And this is what I want you to com comment on next. This emerging alliance between our Western enemies and radical Islam on one hand and the old communist bloc, Russia and China on the other. This is something that would seem to the layperson probably that I was speaking about. Well, that couldn't happen because the communists are atheists. They hate religion. And these guys are, are completely into their, into their fanatical fundamentalism. It couldn't happen. But it is happening. China's already warning. They're, they're going to come right into Afghanistan searching for the rare metals. Russia is making overtures. They're certainly in bed with Iran. You've talked to U.S., Israeli, and Arab intel officials. Should we be confident or pessimistic about the free world's preparations to confront this emerging threat? I think uh, what we've seen over the last few weeks uh, with uh, President Biden, uh, we should be very, very pessimistic and terrified. I mean, you know, those of us who have faith that God is sovereign and good and <laughs> that he loves us and he's got a plan for history, um, whether we care, whether we like it or not, uh, we can have hope. But what we're watching right now is American surrender. We're not watching American strength. For the last four years, we watched American strength. Now, we watched a president who was chaotic. President Trump, you know, I saw a tweet the other day. Somebody said, uh, what I want is President Trump's strength uh, and Biden's tweets. Like the, the, the chaos of the man, Donald Trump, was, was rattling for some. Now, others like, no, fine. He's just a bull in the China shop. No problem. Others were bothered by it. And, um, but Trump was taking America forward. Economically, we were roaring, right? Uh, with our alliances, we were strengthening. And even though we were starting to withdraw from the Middle East, we were strengthening our alliances with Israel, strengthening our alliances with the Arab allies. We were withdrawing from crazy, insane nuclear deals like Barack Obama and Biden made with Iran. Our enemies feared us and our allies trusted us. Um, and so for all the chaos, there were good dynamics happening, okay? That is not the case right now. We're, we're watching full-on surrender, and you think, oh, Afghanistan, that's what's the big deal? It's because every enemy in the world is watching the United States surrender, and every ally is going, if they're willing to cut loose a $2 trillion project, you know, in a week, how do we know that we can trust the United States, the world's only superpower, to stand with us? So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of reason for uh, not to spare, but but real con deep concern about where Biden is taking us. He's supposed to be the the, uh, the foreign policy president, right? 50 years of experience. I point out in the book 
right? I, I, one of the last chapters really deals with what is this change from Trump to Biden? What should we be watching for, right? I couldn't write every detail because those are changing on a minute to minute basis. But I laid out uh, in Enemies and Allies, who is Joe Biden? What do his friends say about him as his strengths? Um, what, what does he say about himself? But what do, we, what do his friends say about his weaknesses? Not just his critics. I cite people who know him. And one of the people who famously knew him was the man who served as defense secretary um, under the Obama-Biden administration, Bob Gates, right? And Gates says, I love Joe Biden. And uh, if I was in a crisis, I can't think of anybody more trustworthy or compassionate to call in, in a problem. But the man's been wrong on every foreign policy and national security issue for the last 40 years. That's a friend saying that. Now, I actually, in fairness, point out some of the things Biden has been right about on foreign policy and national security. It's not been everything. But again, the question is what his judgment, his judgment. And, it's, and, and I, I give serious examples of where Biden has just blown it over the years, including in Afghanistan, I point out in Enemies and Allies that in the national security debate during the Obama administration over the, whether Obama should order special forces into, uh, into Pakistan to, to capture or kill Osama bin Laden, Biden was against the operation. He was against going to capture or kill the man that killed 3,000 Americans. Even Hillary Clinton was for that operation. And to tr Obama's credit, he ordered it. Biden doesn't get it, did, didn't get it. And so this, this tells us how worried we should be. His, he, I think he means well, but his judgment is deeply flawed at a moment that we can't afford that. We look back so that we could see a better path forward. And this is a, an argument that people rightly make, that they say, well, there's never been anyone able to govern Afghanistan, although Alexander the Great did it, so maybe a Greek needs to be in charge. But anyway, they, they say, oh, it's the graveyard of empire. There are all these little trite, honestly, sayings that people have. And so it pushes that desire. It could be, just it could be true, hands. Dean. I mean, let's be honest. It already pulled down the Soviet Union. And now the United States, I mean, we thought we, we knew that. Um, but let me say this, the, the, the reason Afghanistan is important, and I talk about it in Enemies Now, is, is not because it's Afghanistan, it's because it was the base camp um, for uh, the worst surprise attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor, right? And so you can't, you, you, in the world of radical Islamism, not all Muslims. I'm not talking about the vast majority of 1.8 billion Muslims. I'm talking about the subset. Uh, usually, we, we the, uh, research shows us it's between 7 and 10% of the Muslim world who says, yes, I support suicide bombings. And yes, I support you know, hijacking a plane and flying it into a city or using violence to accomplish political and religious objectives. That's a radical Muslim, radical Islamism. That's about 10% or so of the world's 1.8 billion Muslims. So it's true that the vast majority are peaceful, but it's also true that 10% of 1.8 billion is 180 million people. That's a lot of people. That's more than half the population of the United States. If, if they created their own country, it would be the Islamic Republic of Radicalstan, let's say, 
that'd be the ninth largest country on the planet, larger than Russia. Okay, so the pool from which the radicals are drawing is large. And we have to understand that. And so when you leave these ungoverned or chaotic environments, Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria, you are creating no man's land and, and these vacuums draw in the very violent, um, uh, bloodthirsty, and in some cases genocidal, that really can threaten not only our, ourselves as Americans, but our allies. And, but even as bad as that is, and that is bad, and I deal with it in the book, but, but as I say, worse is an actual state that's still together. It's an Iran is an industrial state. It's a modern state. Um, it, it's a, it's an advanced, a scientifically advanced state. It's a, it is, it's got deep culture and, and, and the Persian roots are, you know, they, they are uh, the, the people of great empires, uh, both evil and good, incredibly dangerously close to building nuclear warheads, not one, but an arsenal. And, and they have the ability, let's, let's keep in mind, they're not yet able to reach the United States with their missiles, but they, but they have high-speed missiles that can reach Israel. And if they had built a nuclear warhead and attach it to one of these high-speed missiles, the Iranian regime could do in six minutes what Adolf Hitler took six years to do, and that is kill six million Jews. This would be a second Holocaust. So the Israeli people and our, and our Israeli government cannot afford to say, well, you know, it's not it's a problem, but look, the, the, these, the Iranian regime is misunderstood. Make a deal with them. They just want to come back on the on-ramp of history. They, they feel left out. They feel isolated. No, no, we believe them. They're genocidal. They want to liquidate the entire Jewish nation of Israel. Uh, they, we're only the little Satan in their eschatology or end times theology. The United States is the great Satan. Um, we, but the United States can afford some to take their time. I, I don't think the United States should, but the, but in a sense they can afford it. Israel can't. We 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 are a one bomb country. You hit us with a nuclear weapon, it's over for us. So we're not going to wait. And so, but the, so this is these are the issues that I deal with in the book, um, because I think in many ways in the last eighteen months, Dean, you know. Americans have understandably been very inwardly focused, right? You've got the pandemic uh, health crisis, uh, 600,000 people dead, horrible. Uh, you've got the pandemic economic crisis uh, of all the shutdowns. You've got controversies over vaccines, over shutting down churches, over, um, over, over mandates, over all these different issues. Plus, you've had critical race theory and race riots and incredibly bitter political campaign, it's understandable the United States is inwardly focused, but try to ignore the Middle East at your peril. Like it, you you ignore it, it's going to come and bite you. We ignored it and that's how we got 9-11, right? So we can't, we can't take our eye off this, this, this ball, as it were, of radical Islamism. It's too dangerous. They are coming for us, okay? What I hope is that, yes, People in high political office, um, in intelligence and in diplomacy, and but but just as much the average everyday person who's saying, I know I should pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East, but honestly, I've been too busy. Okay, 
This is a good moment. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 provides the, the moment to say, I don't want to be blindsided again. I want to understand the up-to-the-moment dynamics in this dangerous part of the world. I start off the book by saying the first lines are, you know, it's often said about Las Vegas that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But nobody says that about the Middle East. Because what happens in the Middle East affects the American people. It affects our price of gas. It affects our sons and daughters going to war or not. It affects our budget, $2 trillion to fight the wars in the Middle East. Like Whether you love it or hate it, it doesn't really matter. You can take any political position you want, but the point is the Middle East affects us. You cannot get away from it, even if you try. So that's why this book is important and important right now. You're enjoying my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. He's the author of Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. And appropriately, this has been a fast-moving interview with him. The insights that he has gained are here in the book. How he comes to these opinions and these observations are in there, thanks to his first-person interviews with history makers. You can visit him at joelrosenberg.com. You can also find links to his all Arab news and all Israel news. And you can also find his social media accounts as well. Victoria Coates, who's the former U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for the region, says of the book, quote, enemies and allies is a highly engaging journey through the pitfalls and possibilities of the modern Middle East. A must read for anybody who wants to understand the genesis of the Abraham Accords and their aftermath. Joel, I wanted to move right on from that with the word possibilities. That's the word I'm going to jump out from Victoria Coates' review there of your book. For so long, as you were just speaking about, the world has accepted that eh, that region is, is just a mess. Throw our hands up. Let's, let's just leave it alone. And it, it's kind of like if you have a few skunks in your backyard or bugs in your backyard, you, you can't ignore those, those bad elements because you'd rather just stay inside because eventually the raccoon will get in or the, the skunk will spray you when you, hi, I'm just going to my car. So how do you hope something you heard from one of these leaders that inspired you will maybe let somebody else push back and say, hey, when you want to write off this whole region and say, oh, the heck with, the heck with Saudi Arabia, we, we just nuke them and be done with it. They're, they're all the same. What is something that somebody who is of goodwill can use from one of your interviews to push back against that kind of, yeah, forget it. It's never going to be solved. We, we should just stay home between our oceans. Yeah. Well, Dean, to me, this is the most interesting part of the book. And it's actually the longest part of the book. And, and, and that's the contrast between how dark and dangerous it's becoming, the threats, and how much light and hope and opportunity there is. Uh, these these new opportunities that are opening for peace, and not just not just peace where you know two governments sign some documents, but there is a fundamental sea change of thinking, uh, as we referenced earlier in the in the program, um, in the way the Arab Muslim world views Israel and the Jewish people. They used to be a hundred percent against us. They didn't want Israel to be in the region, right? They, there was, there's been multiple, multiple, multiple Arab-Israeli wars as these countries have either actively uh, uh, fought against us or sent or provided political and financial and other support 
to the frontline Arab countries that were trying to destroy Israel and wipe us off a map. So they are totally rethinking now. They, they are coming to the conclusion that, wow, Israel, they're actually a little bit jealous, to be honest. Israel is building this high-tech, prosperous, militarily strong, I don't want to say progressive because that's in American context sounds weird, but a country with tremendous progress. We, we were like, we had, we had nothing a hundred years ago, 75 years ago, there was just a little bit more than nothing, but not much. And now it's, it's, it's a regional superpower, the regional superpower. It doesn't, we don't have oil in Israel. Uh, you know, we, there's a lot of uh, resources we don't have that other countries in the region have, but so they're all these Arab leaders are like, how has Israel done this? And don't we want to team up with this high tech, innovative, entrepreneurial startup nation? Like, yeah, if we had to go to war with Iran, if if we have to, we don't want to. But if we had to go to war to stop Iran, to neutralize their nuclear threat, can we trust the United States? Well, we can trust Israel because they have the same interests. They, they would will, they're willing to go it alone if they have to, but maybe we should work together. But what about all the economic development and growth and starting companies? We, you know, the Arab leaders are like, we have money, they have technology. We ought to pair this. This could be a gold rush. That's the thinking that's changing. And the Arab Muslim leaders are like, we want tourism. The, the Saudis are like, listen, we've been called the forbidden kingdom for a long time. We need to open our country up. But to come for Jews, for Christians, for others, they need to feel welcome. They need to feel like they're not coming to the Stone Age, to the Flintstones, to the, you know, not in terms of technology, but in terms of values. Like, if you're not going to let a woman drive, if you're not going to let, you know, there's this craziness. Nobody's going to go visit the kingdom of Saudi Arabia if they see it as tyrannical and backwards. And so there's a, there's a lot of change going on. But I will say this, Dean, the thing that makes this book not only the first of its kind, but the only book of its kind is, is that I'm taking you inside the palaces of the Middle East and you are getting to meet, as I got to meet, the most powerful, consequential, controversial leaders of the region. The, I'm not talking to the guy fourth down on the list or the, the ambassador. We're talking to the kings, to the presidents, to the prime ministers, to the crown princes, to the, to the men, and in this case, it's only men, that are making the changes. They're making the decisions. And what they decide is going to affect American lives. If they make good decisions, we might have an era of security and prosperity. If they make bad decisions, the whole region could blow up. And it's not just the Arab leaders, it's Israeli leaders at the top. And I take you into the Oval Office. You, you sit with me as I sit with the President of the United States, the Vice President, the Secretary of State, and we talk about these issues. My point is, take the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the most controversial leader in the Arab world, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, right? Incredibly consequential, incredibly controversial. There have been multiple books written about him in the last few years, one by a New York Times foreign correspondent, uh, one by two Wall Street Journal foreign correspondents, one by a former CIA senior official. They're interesting books. I don't agree with all their conclusions and everything, but, but not a single one of those authors has ever met MBS, much less interviewed him, much less interviewed him for hours and hours and hours 
on the record. I'm the only one that has done that. And it seems odd because you would think someone from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the CIA would exactly be the type of person who would be able to build their confidence, their trust, and, and get to go on the record and talk about every tough issue. Jamal Khashoggi, did you murder him? You don't have a single church on the entire land of Saudi Arabia, and your next-door neighbor, the United Arab Emirates, has 700. Maybe and not the, a Bible. And the Egyptians, yeah, the Egyptians <laughs> built the largest church in the history of the Middle East, and just gave, President Sisi just gave it to the Christians of his country on Christmas Eve. You don't have any. Why are you going to change that? It, you get to hear this conversation. You get to, to read it. And you may love these leaders or hate them. You may agree or disagree. You may agree or disagree with my own conclusions. But my point is, I take you into the, to the room where it happened, to cite uh, the Hamilton play, and you get to hear it for yourself. One of the great frustrations of media bias is I don't know if that I don't know what that guy really thinks. I don't know what that guy really believes because um, I'm not getting to hear from him or from her. I, I I'm just hearing it through the media filter. Okay, I'll take you inside. Come and sit with me. And again, um, nobody else has gotten to do this, or the people, the few people that have, in, in terms of meeting him and spending hours with him, they are the type of people that they're in intelligence or in business or whatever, and they're not coming out and talking about it. So how do we evaluate whether we can trust these leaders? Are they our allies or not? And what do the Israelis really think about what's going on? Not just a, a soundbite here or there. That's why I think this book is fascinating. It was fascinating to, to live and to write. And I'll be intrigued to see as it releases, um, you know, if people see that as, wow, there, there's literally not a single book on the, on the market that's anything close to this. Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be very valuable at a time where, again, I, I guess I, I owe a, a thank you letter to President Biden. I, I, I say that semi, you know, I say it facetiously, but he has forced this issue back. Who are our enemies and who are our allies and how is the White House going to treat both? Well, I think you're the perfect man to have written this book. I was thinking of the many, the many dual parts of, of you as a person. You have the U.S. citizenship, the Israeli citizenship, correct? Your mother was Gentile. Your father was Jewish. This is two sides of you. You yeah. obviously have lived in both countries. You've lived in Israel. You've lived here. So I think you're the, the perfect person to have written this, to get a broader perspective. And you do it with really good humor. I've heard you say, for instance, you met the president of Egypt, uh, al-Sisi, and you said, boy, I'd like to take a picture of them, but no selfie with Sisi. So <laughs> a little bit, I love, I'm goofy. So I love that kind of goofy thing. You mentioned both President Biden and the nation of Turkey. And I, I wanted to give him credit for something else for people who may think that they want a little bit. I used to work at Fox News, so a little bit of uh, fair and balanced when he recognized the Armenian genocide. Now, people said it was the first in history. It wasn't. Reagan also referred to it as a genocide, but it was still significant especially since it's at once an ally on paper, the nation of Turkey, and it's also an emerging enemy. You're getting very close to our foes like Russia. A 2019 poll found over 80% of the country view the United States as a threat. So mm -hmm. we, we look at that NATO map, but all those countries are not willing to stand with us as closely as some of the others. We have their leader dismantling secular institutions 
And there's no way to eject somebody from NATO. There's no way to eject the country out of it. They didn't think to write that into the alliance if you go over to the other side. So I wanted to ask, how did the leaders you spoke to in enemies and allies tell you they were preparing to face that threat from Turkey as it seems to be going over to the other side, moving through that ampersand in your title from ally to enemy? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's one of the stories that I think uh, is definitely not out there in the media yet. And I, there, I can't think of, of uh, too many books. There are a few in the academic world or the think tank world. But in terms of the general market that's, that's, that's starting to look at how do we assess Turkey? I, I've been to Turkey many, many times. It's a beautiful country, just rich history, biblical history, right? It's uh, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and planted churches all through uh, Asia Minor, which we now know is the Republic of Turkey. It's, it, it has been a, a great ally uh, for the last hundred years or so, but, it is, but, but the key is leadership. The key to history is leaders, right? The people have a great deal to do with this, but 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 countries are 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 led by leaders, and if they are good leaders, they can really help uh, you know liberate and strengthen the people. But 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 bad leaders are dangerous, right? You know, and and um, and if, and so the key is, and, and I and I and I do like a, a profile of Recep Erdogan. Erdogan is the president of Turkey. And he was a hidden Islamist. He, he kept his radical Islamist views quiet, private, secret for many, many years as the mayor of Istanbul, later as prime minister. Um, occasionally he would slip. He was actually arrested once and banned from politics because he, he sort of let his mask of radical Islam slip. Uh, and then he sort of course corrected and tried to convince everybody, no, 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 that was just a mistake. And blah, blah, blah. And he emerged as the president. And now he is taking the entire country of Turkey to the dark side, aligning it with Iran, aligning it with Russia, uh, aligning it with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, a terrorist organization that seeks to annihilate Israel. So it's interesting, you know, yeah, Israelis are very worried about the direction Turkey's going. And not just because tens of thousands of Israelis used to take beautiful, cheap vacations on the southern shores of Turkey. Yeah, that's a problem. But now we have other countries like uh, the United Arab Emirates to go to and so forth. But it's not just Israelis who are worried. It's Arab leaders. So, uh, you know, in the book, I, I, uh, I, I, I quote President el-Sisi. Um, who's talking, who's deeply concerned about where Turkey is going and how, and how Erdogan wants to become, like, like Sisi overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt, right, and, and rescued 100 million Egyptians from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood. But now the Muslim Brotherhood has been welcomed into Turkey under Erdogan, who is trying to make himself the leader of all the Sunni radicals. Iran is the is the center of all the Shia Muslim radicals, but Erdogan wants to become the head of all the Sunnis. And so to hear um, President el-Sisi of Egypt talk about this on the record, to hear the leaders of the United Arab Emirates being very open with me, uh, particularly, as I recall, the uh, the foreign minister of the UAE invited me to his home for two hours. And we talked about this. And what do you what do you worry about? Iran? Yes. Turkey, 
was a big topic for him. And um, so it's important to see how much unity there is between Israel and our Sunni Arab allies. There's a, a tremendous uh, unity in terms of how these leaders see the region. It's not like, and, and it used to be when I would use the term radical Islam or more precisely radical Islamism, I would have all kinds of blowback. People saying, you're being so unkind to Muslims and you're just defaming the religion. I said, no, no, I'm not talking about the 1.8 billion Muslims. I'm talking about a subset. I was very clear. But at the time, even President Obama was like, you know, this is crazy. You can't talk about radical Islam. That's cruel. The Muslim leaders themselves use the term. They know the difference between what they believe and what bin Laden believes, what Hamas believes, what Hezbollah believes, what Erdogan believes. And Muslims are offended if you don't show that there's a difference between a peaceful moderate and a radical lunatic. Like, you know, that'd be, that's just, it's cruel not to create distinctions in this case. And so that was a fascinating piece of this book as well. One thing is, Dean, I'm realizing that you asked me a question, which I may not have given you the answer that you were actually asking. And it's a classic way of an author going, I want to make this point, whether you want to hear it or not. So let me be, I'm just doubling back. You asked, what's the one hopeful thing? Is there something hopeful? And so I talked about hearing from these leaders, but let me say something hopeful in there. In October of 2018, I was sitting in the palace in the United Arab Emirates in the capital of Abu Dhabi with their crown prince, who's the de facto leader of the country, the, the, the top leader is ailing. And his name is Mohammed bin Zayed. So he's affectionately referred to in the region as MBZ or MBZ. MBZ. And, and I was saying to him, listen, I'm with this group of evangelical leaders that you've invited us. Thank you. You've never invited evangelical leaders to the UAE before. We're deeply honored to be here and talk to these about these issues. He, he spent two hours with us. It was fascinating. But I said, one of the topics we want to talk about is peace in the region. Um, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as, as students of the Bible, as teachers of the Bible, we believe God has a certain plan and a, and a wonderful plan and purpose for Israel and the Jewish people. So you can't, our love for Israel and the Jewish people isn't political, it's theological. So it's rock solid. You can't shake us from that. So you just need to know that about evangelicals. Second, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors and the Palestinians are our neighbors and Arabs and Muslims generally are our neighbors. So it's not that we love Israel and we hate Palestinians. We don't hate Palestinians. I mean, some evangelicals sadly speak ill or maybe denigrate because they think that's defending Israel. We don't think that's the appropriate way. We, we're not coming here with a plan uh, of how to fix the Israeli-Palestinian crisis and, and, and challenge, but we just want you to know it's not zero sum for us. We, we love both sides. And third, the Bible commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122, verse 6. So uh, we've been praying for a long time. And what we're looking for is who will be the next Arab leader that makes peace with Israel, even if the Palestinian leadership remains intransigent, recalcitrant, resistant, you know, has no intention of making peace in the near term. Okay, will somebody step forward in the Arab world and make peace with Israel anyway? Because 
at that point, we're like, it's almost been a quarter of a century since Jordan and Egypt made peace. To our shock, Dean, uh, MBZ leaned forward. He said, Joel, it's going to be me. I'm going to make peace with Israel. And we're like, whoa, we, we wanted to lay out those principles, but we weren't actually, actually expecting that answer. We talked to him about why, what has changed in your thinking? Why are you ready? And we talked about, so he talked to us about the roadmap. How would he get there? The problem with that conversation, Dean, is super encouraging as it was, is it was off the record at that time. So we couldn't come out of the palace and say, we had a huge headline yeah, two yeah. years before the Abraham Accords. Tweeted out right away. I right? know, exactly. <laughs> In this day and age, it's hard to sit on information like that. But our goal was to build trust and relationships so we could talk about all the issues that matter to us and all the issues that matter to them. And they'd be comfortable to tell us stuff and, and, and know that we weren't going to betray them. To us, that was more important than a headline because we weren't really there as journalists. We were there as faith leaders. What happened? Two years later, it was Mohammed bin Zayed that decided to make peace with Israel. August 13th, 2020, they announced that he had brokered a deal through President Trump and the Trump team um, with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel. And that was the first country. Then other countries were like, we want in too. We're ready also. MBZ's leadership set into motion, into motion Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco in a few months. In the case of Bahrain, in a few days. And so I was at the White House on the, white, on the South Lawn on September 15th, 2020, to witness the signing of the first Arab-Israeli peace treaties in a quarter of a century. And I and this is the first book, it's the only book out that it, that's telling the story of how we got in detail, the behind the scenes story of how we got to these game-changing, historic, super positive Arab-Israeli peace treaties in the midst of all the darkness, all the chaos of the region. Why is this happening? And since this is a history program, let's talk about just, I'll just reference this and I won't go on and on beyond this. Sun Tzu, right? Sun Tzu says, you can't learn about the intentions of your enemy by ghosts and spirits. You can't elicit this information. You need to go talk to the people that have the direct information. I'm paraphrasing. Um, now, MBZ was not an enemy, but he wasn't a peace partner with Israel. And not just for peace, but normalization. Let's have trade. Let's have tourism. Let's have cultural exchanges. Let's, let's go visit you. You guys come visit us. 150,000 Israelis have come, have flocked into the UAE. Like, what is this Arab country that's welcoming us with open arms? What is going on here? Venture capitalists are flying back and forth. How do we make deals? It's popping. It's crackling. Somet sometimes you actually have to be in the room. And you have to ask these questions and you don't always expect an answer. You're not always going to get an answer. But that was one of the most encouraging conversations that I've had as a Jewish, Israeli, American, evangelical, who wasn't there to write a book. But out of that, I thought these are stories that need to be told. And yeah, eventually Vice President Pence is writing a book. Jared Kushner is writing a book. David Friedman, the Trump ambassador to Israel, all good men in there, and they're writing, I'm sure, very interesting books. But most of those books are about lots of other things. 
right? Pence is not going to only talk about the Middle East. He's got a few other topics that he needs to cover. And Jared is the same way. So this is the first and so far, the only book that, that tells this story. And it's incredibly encouraging. And that's what makes this book so odd. But I think compelling is you have real dark, dangerous, depressing elements and you have this incredible hope, but all of it is you're hearing it from firsthand leaders at the highest possible levels. It's not just cherry picking some quotes out of a newspaper. Always go for the first person accounts in history, I always say. And here you're getting it that they say the first draft of history is news. You're getting the first draft of the first draft, just the notes. And I'll give one example of why history is important to understanding this distinction with Islam, but just in general to go forward. And that is, you mentioned Turkey and the rich history. Well, of course, it's Greek history that's there. Greeks were there forever and gives you an idea. My grandparents, both their families were slaughtered in the genocide by the Turks. So it's something that I always think, uh, I didn't think of it till the current crisis, but I try to remember that I'm the grandson of refugees and people Mm -hmm. that were welcomed into the United States. But This shows you what can happen if you don't take a threat seriously, specifically from radical Islam. But also, you mentioned Istanbul, which is Constantinople still to Greeks, who I'm named after, by the way. Constantine is my name, Gostandinos, and Dean is short. So there you will find murals of Mohammed. And yet we read in the paper all the time, well, the images are forbidden. And it's clearly not forbidden. It's forbidden by the Taliban. But why would you allow the Taliban to speak for everybody and say, oh, they're all these, they're all basically these crazy people who don't want you to draw a cartoon or don't want you to draw the likeness. It would be no different than a radical sect of Christianity saying, which we do have prohibitions against craven images, saying, well, you can't have any statues, and them saying, oh, okay, we're not going to have any pictures in the paper because we're going to let that most radical little sect set the set the standard for an entire religion. And you only learn that if you go and and I've seen those there in the former Constantinople, today Istanbul. If you go to the Muslim world, you travel and you ask, who is that? And they tell you Muhammad. And as a Westerner, you may be shocked. I thought that this was forbidden. Well, things like that are what you get in Enemies and Allies because you actually traveled. And I, I want to close by asking you about a former ally of ours that we both had the pleasure of working for and knowing the late, great Rush Limbaugh. You quoted Sun Tzu. I will quote closer to home Abraham Lincoln because Rush always felt he could do what Lincoln said. And Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend? And Rush believed in persuasion. He didn't think there was anybody that he couldn't persuade. And he thought that's what we do in a free society. We don't shoot people in the streets for disagreeing or for drawing a picture that we don't like. We we have a conversation. Meet me in the arena of ideas. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask, How can enemies and allies help the millions of listeners, tens of millions of listeners that really still miss Rush that he left behind? They miss that optimism. They miss that willingness to politely engage with people that disagreed with them and find a way to see this vision of the brighter Middle East that I see today behind your smile when you're talking about meeting all these leaders over there and having that front row seat to history. How can people read this book and get a really brighter vision of the Middle East, despite the gloom and what Rush used to call the drive-by media? I guess I'll answer it this way. I think Rush would have really liked this book. And I and and the reason is because he would have seen in it from our, you know, 
25 year friendship, how much he influenced me. Okay. I was a film major at Syracuse University. My so my academic training was how to tell a story. It wasn't really journalism per se, and it wasn't really Middle Eastern studies per se. I did spend six months at Tel Aviv University studying Middle Eastern uh, history and politics and culture and language. But when I ended up going to Washington and ended up working for Rush um, as his director of research, um, I, you know, I didn't have the academic training that would have like in political science and in all, you know, Western civilization or all these other things that might've been useful for a job like that. But I, what I learned from him is how, uh, the way I describe it is how to pan for gold, um, how to sift through mountains of, of dark, you know, garbage really, uh, or at least if you're in a, in a, to keep with the analogy, you're up in Colorado or something and you're just sifting through sand and silt and, and rocks, and, but you're looking for gold and, and, and you're looking for, and the key is knowing how to observe whether you're researching history and you're on a database or you're sitting listening to someone, you're, the key is how to understand that's significant, right? Because there's, we live in an information age where we're being drowned by information. The problem is not getting information. The problem is knowing what is actually important. What's the piece of gold in that, in what somebody's telling us or what somebody's written? Rush had a unique ability to listen to liberals or to anyone, but let's say, you know, obviously he's in a conservative liberal clash and to hear a quote by a liberal that captured the essence of the philosophy and why it was wrong or to read a news story and find the factoid in the 92nd paragraph. He's like that. If he had written the article, it would have been up front because that's the significant piece. And when we listen to Rush or watch him on tel- television back in the day, um, the, one of the reasons we listened to him was because he was scanning so much information. But when we listened to him, we knew he said, look, I'll watch all the weekend shows so you don't have to. Right. Like what, what he meant was I have this ability and, you know, I do because that's why you're listening. That's why you trust me. And I'll play the actual soundbite. I'm not going to just tell you he said it or I'll show you the quote in the newsletter or whatever, but you'll see what the opposition really thinks. Not You don't have to read the whole speech. I'll do that. You don't have to listen to everything. You don't have to read their whole book, but I will sift through and I'll show you what these people really think and why it's dangerous. But he also, so the ability to learn that is, is that's not easy. And I, as director of research, I, often I would be listening to the Rush Limbaugh show. I mean, as a, as a staff person going, where did he get this from? Like, I'm the guy supposed to be feeding him stuff, but he was his own research director. Let's just be clear about that. But I would send him stuff, mountains of stuff every morning as he prepped for the show. And I learned by what he used and what he didn't, what was significant. When I heard some little gem that I sent, or I thought I sent him a mountain of material and I thought this was important and this was, and he like chucked all that and found this piece. I'm like, oh, that's, that was graduate school for me. 
I was learning the art of research and political communications. Um, and I was learning that you can do it with humor. You don't have to be mean and you don't have to be depressed as you look at a situation. Um, and by mixing up your ways of your style of communication, sometimes you're serious, sometimes you're funny, gives an audience an ability to absorb that information, process it, and decide whether they agree with you or not. Now, that's a long, longer than I should, but, but the reason I say that is because this book is the product of trying to learn, not the way I saw the, the media do it, but the way Rush did it. Now, you don't see his, unless you know him, and you do, and, and, and your audience does, you'll see his fingerprints in, in the way I think. And I tested this against him a lot. He had me on his show a number of times and in the newsletter. And one of the things I loved about him was he loved Israel. Uh, I, in fact, was working on um, trying to arrange, Netanyahu invited him even late in his life, even after he was diagnosed. We were working on trying to put together a trip because he just hadn't been there in so long. It didn't work out. But he had a great love for Israel and he understood radical Islamism. Um, and I remember one of the newsletters that interviews he did with me. I mean, again, he never talked to former staff people on the air or I mean, you know, obviously boast nerdly, our friend James. He, he, yes. But that was a different relationship. Someone like me, who no one ever heard of or cared. Why should he have me on the show? Why should he have me in the newsletter? He can have anybody. But he really was fascinated with Israel and the Middle East, and he saw me as part of his team that understood an area of the world that he cared about and that was spending more time panning for gold than he was. And I appreciated that he saw me as his Middle East correspondent, in a sense, um, and wanted to transmit what he was learning from me to his audience because he felt these issues about Israel and war and peace in the Middle East, these are important. You cannot run from them. You need to know about them. It's not the only thing you need to know and you don't have to spend every day on it, but, but the question is who can you listen to? Who can you trust? And um, his validation and encouragement of me was so encouraging to me. And, and I think enemies and allies is in, in many ways a great product of a book that he knew I was writing. He knew I was living it. He and I were talking about it as I was working on it. And, and he found it fascinating. How is Joel Rosenberg, one of my junior staff people, how is he getting invited to sit down with these leaders and really listen to them? And so- He's proud of you, Joel. Look, I'm a follower of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. I look forward to the day when I'm in heaven. I don't want it to be today, but when that happens, I look forward to a reunion with with Rush, it's one of the great joys of being a believer in Jesus Christ is, is the assurance that this is not the end and that we, there will be a reunion for those who are followers of Jesus, not because we did anything right, but because God showed mercy on us through Christ. And, and I look forward to spending time with Rush. I miss him. He doesn't need this book now because he has <laughs> access to God himself. <laughs> you know, he had that talent on loan from God, and now God has taken it back and... <laughs> And now the rest of us have to use what little little shreds of talent we've been loaned from the Lord. And um, I don't know if that answered the question you were trying to ask, but I, 
my forgive me, Brett. I, I yeah. <laughs> blame it on my question, not on no, you. No, I, I will say for for you, and for one thing, I know Rush was was proud of you, and it was that was very nice. And also that those of us on the staff, people have this preconceived notion, just as they did of Rush sometimes. But as Tom Daschle said in 2002, they did a poll. They said a lot of people listen to Rush that don't agree with him. And this was the same for the, the wider staff that he had, people. There was no test there. And it was just he wanted to be entertaining first and foremost. I sometimes use the example of Louis Rukeyser, a woman wrote him and said, I don't care about finance when he was doing Wall Street Week. I'm so sorry, but I watch you because you're entertaining. And Louis Rukeyser said, Madam, I expect everybody who watches this show to be frowning, not happy, not enjoying it. And this was his joking way to say, of course, you want to be entertaining first and foremost. Enemies and allies, Joel Rosenberg, certainly entertaining as well as interesting. So are you on all those many media outlets you have, including now you're going on with our former colleague and friend James Golden on WABC in the afternoons now. He's going to be on for an hour. So people are looking for more of Joel. And that ties it together just real quick. Russia's winsome way. He could be tough and he could be in, you know, as you know, but he also had a winsomeness that I've tried to adapt it. The style is not the same. I'm not him. And I, and, but, but the ability to be a Jewish evangelical Israeli and sit with an Arab Muslim monarch requires the ability to say, you and I don't agree on everything, but let's talk. I want to persuade you about some things and I want to ask you about some things and you might want to persuade me about some things and let's, but let's have that conversation and let's have fun doing it. If we can, let's laugh. I, we don't have time to get into all the, the funny moments uh, with these leaders, but, but that was Russia's way that he, he could do that. And I learned that what I'm aren't inartfully trying to say, see, I'm a writer really, I guess not a, a communicator like this, even though my style is so different from him, I learned a lot of principles and I've tried to work them out over time. How do you engage with people who totally disagree with you? Can you be respectful even while being critical? I tried to learn that from him, among other things. Another thing I realized we picked up is that neither of us ever have enough time. We, we always want to talk more. And so if people want to hear more from you, Joel Rosenberg, they should definitely go pick up the book Enemies and Allies. Joel, this was such a great conversation today. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to reading more from you and hearing more from you. Best of luck with the book. When you go home to Israel, please do stay safe, of course. And we will keep in touch about this. And next time, if it's a thriller, just lay it on me. I'd be glad to talk about that. Wonderful. Thank you, Dean. Great to be with you and keep up the the great work. Thank you. Again, the book is Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode by buying a book through us. You help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. As you can tell, I really appreciate Joel Rosenberg's insights. He's a fun guy and an excellent writer, especially about such weighty topics. That's the kind of book I know I always want to read, even if I didn't know Joel for so many years. Thanks to him for joining us and for sharing these insights into the meanings he had with the men who control the fates of untold millions in the Middle East, not just people today, but generations as yet unborn. Visit him at joelrosenberg.com for more and to find his always insightful blog. 
as well as links to his All Israel News and All Arab News websites. You will get news and insights from Joel Rosenberg that you simply will not find anywhere else in the media. And remember to check out Joel's nonprofit charity for Arab and Israeli alike. That's the Joshua Fund at joshuafund.com. Of course, you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Plus, check out our YouTube channel, where I hope you'll subscribe to watch future conversations. Well, that's all the History Author Show has for you in this installment. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this look back at where we came from with an eye on where we're going. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Joel Rosenberg, thanks so much for time traveling with us today and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.